Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 10th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 13th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? I feel like I only ever talk about the weather, but um, <laughs> this week was miserable. This week was awful, and um, the, the this weekend is much cooler, and it will be a big relief to me, like, emotionally yeah. and psychologically. Okay. Any good plans this weekend? Um, I have, yeah, family get-together, actually. I'm seeing my... How old is she? 94-year-old great-aunt for her All birthday. Right. Yeah. She's kicking. No, bless her heart for making yeah. it to 94. Yeah. Jasmine, what about you? I'm okay, and I, I like the weather. You know, So I've been going out every day, getting mm. some sun, because I know it's not going to last forever. Like, I know I'm going to miss it once it starts getting cold, so... I have literally like not, I've been hiding in front of an AC unit for three days straight. Like I have not <laughs> left my apartment. I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I like the weather. I'm in the middle, <laughs> um, but I also like, you know, the cooler temps we'll have this weekend and I'm super excited because I'm doing one of those rooftop concerts um, that's happening in the city. It's a tribute to Miles Davis. So I'm looking forward to that. Some nice live jazz on a Friday night. Anyways, uh, on this op- episode, we will be discussing the NYC Pride's parade banning of gay- the Gay Officer Action League from marching, Kamala Harris's visit to Central America, the global government spending on nuclear weapons during the pandemic, and some good news about some stoppages to oil and gas business and much more. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. So this story broke uh, in May, but it's centered on Pride Month, which is this month. Um, So it's a little old, but also still really relevant. Um, I also haven't found more recent updates on it. So apologies in advance. You know, if if there's more info out there that or even something that maybe breaks before um, this airs on Sunday. So about a month ago, uh, Michael Gold reported in The New York Times that, quote, New York City's annual Pride celebration, which began 51 years ago uh, as a defiant commemoration of an anti-police uprising and has evolved into a city-sanctioned equality jamboree, will take steps to reduce the presence of law enforcement at its events. Starting this year, police and corrections officers will also not be allowed to participate as a group in the annual Pride March until at least 2025. The ban includes the Gay Officers Action League, an organization of LGBTQ police, which announced the news in a statement on Friday night. And sidebar, Friday was la- was last month. Um, uh, the New York City, uh, New York Police Department will also be asked to stay a block away from the edge of all in-person events, including the march. Heritage of Pride, which organizes events, uh, will instead turn to private companies for security and safety calling police officers in emergencies only when necessary, they said. Uh, So then on May 28th, the New York Times published an article by John Leland titled Pride Said Gay Cops Aren't Welcome. Then came the backlash. Uh, That article reports, quote, It was two weeks before the start of Pride Month, and the organization that runs New York's Pride March was fighting about cops. The leadership had just announced that officers could no longer take part in the march, including a contingent of LGBTQ officers that has marched in uniform since 1996. 
The officers were angry. The mayor called it a mistake. At a tense Zoom meeting on May 20th, members of the organization Heritage of Pride tore into their leadership, moving to overturn the ban and unseat the executive board. Some called the ban no different from the discrimination they all faced. Passions flared on both sides of the issue, include, um, often dividing along racial or class lines. After two hours of debate, members voted to overrule, overrule their own board, allowing cops to march. Minutes later, in a closed session, the board unanimously rejected the members' vote. Members learned about this through a late-night email. Uh, so, you know, while there are innumerable stories about how, about how the NYC Pride Parade has helped queer people find their place in the world, uh, quote Francesca Barhone, 25, who is Black and bisexual, did not see herself in these stories. At the Pride March in 2018, her second, she recalled seeing all the corporate floats and the stores with rainbow flags and thinking, this doesn't feel real. We didn't have job protections, she said. Black trans women were being murdered. So I could see the Heritage of Pride Parade as this thing for white gay men, muscly and glitter. My first Pride March was so exciting, but what are we actually doing? Uh, Quote, divisions within the Pride community are as old as the march itself. The first Christopher Street Liberation Day march in 1970 was a break from its precursor, the annual reminder picket, where women had to wear dresses and marchers could not kiss or hold hands. It wasn't in touch with the revolutionary spirit of the 60s, said Ellen Brady, one of Christopher Street Liberation Day, uh, one of the Christopher Street Liberation Day organizers. The energy unleashed at Stonewall had changed everything. Gay liberation, she said, meant revolution. Uh, And more recently, quote, with clashes between protesters and police filling social media, pressure rose on Heritage of Pride to reduce police involvement, including banning the Gay Officers Action League, which routinely receives effusive cheers during the Pride March. The Pride Board announced a month-long pause to reassess its goals and practices. Uh, when Heritage of Pride announced the uh, when Heritage of Pride announced the temporary ban on police officers at the Pride Parade, they explained, uh, "quote that." The safety that law enforcement is meant to provide can instead be threatening and at times dangerous to those in our community who are most often targeted with excessive force. The Gay Officers Action Lead called the ban shameful. Uh, A long-term Heritage of Pride member called it flat-out discriminatory. Uh, And Kathy Kathy Marino-Thomas, a leading activist in the Campaign for Marriage Equality, said she was ending her associate membership in Heritage of Pride, calling it out of touch. Not that there's no issue with the police, she said. I'm completely on the side of our various communities that have suffered abuse from the New York NYPD. But to not allow a group of our siblings to tell their coming out story, uh, we become our oppressors. Andy Hum, a co-host of a news program called Gay USA, is quoted as saying, quote, it's mostly white people moaning over process. The majority of the executive board are people of color. They want a different direction. This is where a lot of the community is going. Uh, But of course, quote, some supporters of the ban broke down in tears, describing how the presence of uniformed officers at the march made them feel unsafe and unwelcome. Uh, A member named Antonio Centeno Jr. said, quote, that as a Puerto Rican man whose father had been beaten by the police, he knew the fear that they engendered when uh, and the need for reform. But what's happening here is not police reform. Andre Thomas, co-chair of Heritage of Pride, quote, angrily accused some of dismissing the negative experiences so many African-Americans had with police. In the past week, he told them he had received online messages of hate consistently from white gay men to the extent that his family feared for his safety. 
This organization will no longer get any more of my black life, my black labor, and my black body, he told them, according to his own account. You'll receive my resignation tomorrow. Uh, And as a sidebar note, Mr. Thomas later announced that in the end he was not resigning, but said he, quote, uh, said, quote, he would work even harder on fixing the systemic racism that plagues this organization as it does this country. Um, So just a reminder about other ways uh, Pride is done. Um, The quote, the Dyke March, which was started in 1993 by women who felt erased by the larger Pride March, will proceed down Fifth Avenue on Saturday, June 26th. As always, it has no police permit or police presence. There's also, quote, a group called Reclaim Pride Coalition, which had formed a few years earlier in frustration over what the Pride March, originally a protest against police harassment, had become. Many of Reclaim's organizers were veterans of ACT UP or other protest groups reinvigorated after the election of Donald J. Trump. Uh, They have a march planned for June 27th, as does um, STAR, which is S-T-A-R-R. STAR also has a parade on the 27th. Um, And Heritage of Pride, the larger parade that everyone is more familiar with, is also on June 27th. Um, So this story, I I found it really interesting. it just really acutely highlights like the inherent difficulties that come up during like an intersectionality, how marginalized communities can act as both oppressed and oppressor in different contexts and how these communities aren't monolithic. They're composed of uh, different people with different um, individual identities as well. What do you guys think? Well, first of all, like happy pride to everyone who's out celebrating. I don't think we said it last week, but um, I think the cops should stay out for sure. Um, It's not my march, like I'm not in charge of it or whatever, but um, it's my view that you should always be thinking about the most vulnerable people or the people that are most likely to be subject to state violence. And if it's really about liberation, like their safety should be at the forefront and not people's feelings. So yeah, especially with everything that's been happening in New York City and across the country with police uh, and the escalating um, like fascistic like violence, uh, it really to me would seem like a slap in the face, um, not just with the origin of pride, but what's happening today, like having them there in that uniform capacity, like I doesn't make sense to me. I totally get where they're coming from. Um, I just know like the magnitude of pride is always so big and it does feel awkward. I don't know if you've ever been to a pride parade, but just the way that the police are kind of, you know, I don't know what, what, what to call it. Like some of them are like participating in it. Some of them are just kind of watching, but it's intense. Anytime you have a large police presence at a celebration about freedom, you know, like anytime and the history of, pride in New York and just trying to make it happen. I I totally get where they're coming from. I get it. Um, I have to play devil's advocate and just say, though, if I was a gay officer, I would probably feel offended, too. I mean, it doesn't matter. Their feelings are not more important than the whole spirit of what pride means. But I, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that we we consider that, because if if that is your role and you're not, you know, one of those shitty cops that that do all the wrong things and you just happen to be a gay cop that works in New York city. That's trying to be on the right side of things. 
I can see how that could be offensive and whatever, but nonetheless, anytime you have a, like I said, if you have a large police presence in a celebration of freedom in this country or many others, it always creates fear and intimidation. And I think it takes down a little bit on what the celebration is supposed to be about. I, w- I wasn't really sure how to feel when I was, fr- I-, I had to read the article because I, it is, it was just such an interesting like issue to bring up. And I think at the end of the day, you know, your job is your, they could take off their uniforms and still march, right. They could still be there. Um, right. Whereas, right. Whereas other, you know, people of color can't change their identity. Right. Um, so I think at the end of the day, that's sort of where I fall into it. But I think, you know, I think you're also right, Teresa, where it's, you know, the, the gay officers action, like progress comes in many different forms. And there was certainly a time where, um, not too far long ago. And and even today, like, you know, um, gay officers, I'm sure face a heavy amount of discrimination. Um, so them having their own dedicated action league is a huge, you know, form of defiance in the face of, um, prejudice in its own way. Um, but you know, as I, so it's like, you want to, that's something to celebrate in and of itself, but at the same time, as you know, we've talked about many, many times on this show, um, they can take those uniforms off and still be a member of the community and others who, you know, for, for whom police presence represents potential bodily harm, right. That doesn't, that outweighs that, you know, their ability to feel safe in that community is really important. That's your profession. It's not your identity. You know, it's like, it's for you to be, how many people are in that march or that want to be out to celebrate? And, you know, we've talked about like the walking while trans ban and everything on this show. And you got to potentially see somebody that may have like given you a hard time. I don't know who said it first. But it's so to the point, it's like the great excluder wants to be included in everything. It's like your whole job is about whether you think of it that way or not. Like the origin of it is to like separate people, to protect capital, to protect the interests of people that have positions of privilege and authority in the country. Like so you like part of your role what even if you think you're a nice person or whatever like you can't separate it from that you know and to feel like you're entitled to march in such a in a way where like that's at the forefront of why you're there is your uniform like you're representing your vocation at a liberation march like i you there's other groups that have done like separate events you know, that are more niche, that fit, you know, more to their lifestyle. Like, I'm sure they could do the same. They're a bunch of police officers. If they would like to do, you know, their own thing or other people that are in other, I guess, similar positions where their role puts them at odds with gay rights. Or like you said, they could march, you know, on without their uniform on, but walking around, like I could see that being so incredibly triggering to so many of the people that are black, Hispanic, you know, people who are visibly queer that have to worry about their safety every day, that you cannot override that because someone is like, oh, what this hurts my feelings. It's like people are dead because of interactions between police 
and members of the queer community. Like you can get over not being able to march in your uniform. Well, shout out for to them for being able to take a stance on this. You know, I think that um, other groups have maybe tried to have the same action happen uh, with the police officers and their celebrations and just sort of not successful, you know? Um, and so they I definitely have seen in communities, in the black communities, when they try to have the cops participating in these festivals is to be community building. You know, they always play, play it in that way. And it's accepted to some regards, you know, based on whoever is throwing the event, but to be able to say, no, you're not allowed. This is our celebration. I think that is a move forward for them to see just how bad things really are. Not like we need another justification, but at the end of the day, you know, it's definitely, it's nice to see that somebody took a stance and it actually was acknowledged. It's actually going forward with that. So, well, I agree. I agree mostly, but on that note though, like the contentious way that the decision was made, like I, I did, I, you know, I mentioned that, it was like they announced it and then the members voted to overrule that. And then the board and like a secret after hours meeting, like we're like, no, we're still going to do it. And that is really like interesting. I think, I mean, I think it's super interesting in the, in the sense of, you know, just how um, I don't want to say divided, but just how much this, you know, the LGBT commu- community is not one thing, right? It is so many different people who are concerned about so many different things um, and yeah. And, you know, I, I hope that the community finds, you know, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to speak for the community actually. I just, I wish it hadn't been such a contentious decision, I guess. It just felt very, um, uncomfortable to read that that's how it went down. Yeah, I agree. The process still fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. I um, mean, it's not much you can like because of the nature of the issue, like it yeah. has to be contentious. Like it's not yeah. gonna be resolved, and it, it's it's very. It's like what other circumstance do you have it where it would go in this direction? I feel like ninety nine percent of the time, mm-hmm. it's like we don't give a fuck. Like the police are gonna be there whether you want them there or not. Like they're not ever told they can't go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. So, that was my point. That was my point. Yeah. So like this is like a reversal of that because I yeah. definitely was like I couldn't even I couldn't believe what I was reading so mm-hmm. I'm like you know yeah. I I'm I'm surprised by the decision but um I know all the people that I know that are queer like they I know that they feel similar to like how I feel where cops make me uncomfortable period mm-hmm. and so you know if you really want to be inclusive and knowing that um like how the Stonewall riots mm-hmm. started and who started them, like it it would be in my view disrespectful to continue to let um cops march like in uniform in this way. So and on that note too, I actually I found the information about S T A R R Star, which I mentioned earlier and had misquoted quoted or something, but um Star Quote, reprises an organization formed in 1969 by Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera after the Stonewall Uprising. Um, so just, you know, as a an additional note on, on that. And yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll put up links on our show page on Facebook and on Instagram to various events you can attend. Like there's obviously the big pride 
parade, but I'll put links to the other events that Emily mentioned if you are seeking alternatives. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Jasmine. And thank you, Emily, for that great story. Uh, We're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break today. Um, I'm excited playing a little throwback rock and roll. Um, Yeah, I was just in a mood. So here is Jimi Hendrix with Hey Joe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have our national news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so um, this information comes from Slate.com. The article was written by Pedro Gerson on June 10th, uh, so earlier today that we're recording. The title of the article is Kamala Harris's Do Not Come Message Was a Political Failure. Um, so I'm going to mostly like read the article verbatim because I think it was um, everything was very well said, and I'll just interject some context um, where it's appropriate. Um, President Trump let xenophobia and cruelty toward migrants drive his policy decisions, but President Joe Biden has promised to implement policies that promote integration, inclusion, and citizenship and embrace the full participation of the newest Americans in our democracy. And yet the chasm in tone has not yet been replicated in many areas of substance. For example, while the Biden administration has done a lot to expand the capacity of the Office of Refugee Resettlement to reduce the number of unaccompanied migrants under Border Patrol custody, it has also kept the border closed under Title 42 which closes the border to non-essential travel for public health purposes, turning away families and individuals, even those applying for asylum. It has also continued the use of immigration detention and has in fact overseen a rise in the number of detainees since March. Finally, Biden plans to continue the militarization of the border as shown by his administration's 1.2 billion request for border infrastructure compared with, for example, only 345 million for U.S. citizenship and immigration services to clear naturalization and asylum backlogs. 
it is in this context that we must look at Vice President Kamala Harris's trip to Guatemala and Mexico earlier this week. Uh, I believe she was there. Um, the trip began on Monday. Harris's first international trip emphasized the administration's aspiration to attend to the quote unquote root causes of migration. In Guatemala, Harris announced that the U.S. will support an anti-corruption panel that Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate has maligned. Meanwhile, in Mexico, she and President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador announced plans to collaborate on security and quell Central American migration through development, new U.S. investments in Mexican agriculture, and aid to implement new Mexican labor laws. However, in the U.S., these substantive agreements were overshadowed by Harris's comments in Guatemala, where she starkly told would-be migrants, do not come. Naturally, the line was widely criticized by policymakers and immigrants' rights groups, who rightly saw it as a violation of U.S. commitments to asylum seekers and a 180 on many of the Biden team's campaign promises. Furthermore, as many pointed out on social media, it took quite a lot of chutzpah for a U.S. government official to tell Central Americans fleeing danger or deprivation not to come to the U.S. when the country is at least partly responsible for creating the conditions of violence and deprivation in the first place. Um, and on that note, like this is an aside, um, what I'm reading is mostly from Wikipedia just for the way that it was put together, but I did go through and check like other sources and you can also check yourself. So the RC RCIA overthrew the democratically elected Guatemalan president, Jacobo Arbenz, and ended the Guatemalan revolution of 1944 to 1955. Uh, it installed the military dictatorship of Carlos Castillo Armas and was the first in a series of US backed authoritarian rulers in Guatemala. The Guatemalan Revolution started in 1944 after a popular uprising toppled the military dictatorship of Jorge Ubico. Juan Jose Arevalo was elected president in Guatemala's first democratic election. He introduced a minimum wage and near universal suffrage and turned Guatemala into a democracy. Arevalo was succeeded by Arbenz in 1951, who instituted land reforms which granted property to landless peasants. The Guatemalan Revolution was disliked by the U.S. federal government, which was predisposed during the Cold War to see it as communist. This perception grew after Arbenz had been elected and formally legalized the Communist Guatemalan Party of Labor. The CIA-backed coup is described as the definitive death blow to democracy in Guatemala and was widely criticized internationally and strengthened the long-lasting anti-U.S. sentiment in Latin America. Castillo Armas assumed dictatorial powers, banned opposition parties, imprisoned and tortured political opponents, and reversed the social reforms of the revolution. Nearly four decades of civil war followed as leftist guerrillas fought the series of U.S.-backed authoritarian regimes whose brutalities included genocide of the Maya peoples. Um, so this back to the Slate article. White House press secretary later clarified that Harris was merely trying to protect migrants from making the dangerous journey. 
However, that journey is dangerous in large part because the U.S. has militarized the border and forced migrants into the shadows. If the concern was the dangerous journey, that could be solved by easing migration restrictions and demilitarizing the border. Beyond their hypocrisy or gall, Harris's comments are troubling because they signal another way in which the Biden administration is engaging in immigration policy continuity. Although, to be fair to Trump, telling people not to come did not start with his administration, but with President Bill Clinton's policy of prevention through deterrence, which began in 1994. Back then, the U.S. government made it harder to cross to the U.S. through more urban ports of entry in the hopes that migrants would be dissuaded from coming by the much more dangerous routes they would have to take. Judging by the fact that migration continued and reached its historic peak in the early 2000s, this policy failed on its own terms. Judging by the fact that it led to the deaths of at least 7,800 migrants, it was also a moral failure. Since then, different administrations have sought to deter migrants from coming through different means, whether expanding the use of immigration detention or funding the militarization of Mexico's southern border, Simply telling migrants not to come is not the same as purposefully making migration more dangerous, but it is motivated by the impulse. However, all the evidence available shows that deterrence does not work. Given the fact that most people are coming because they are escaping violence and economic deprivation, how could marginally increasing the cost of migration change their decision? Harris's comments are also a political failure. She is conceding to the administration's critics that the U.S. cannot receive more migrants, even asylum seekers. This is dangerous because it makes it harder to make the case for increasing paths to legal immigration. Yet, as economist Michael Clements has argued, one of the root causes of irregular migration is U.S. restrictive immigration laws because people will migrate regardless of what legal channels exist for doing so. Lacking regular and open paths to come here makes it all but certain that those who want to come will do so without legal authorization. Increasing paths for legal immigration will only be achieved if the Biden administration stops framing immigration as a problem. No longer telling people not to come is a good way of moving in that direction. Providing more ways for them to come safely and legally would be an even better one. Um, so on that note, there were some organizations I just wanted to list if you're interested in learning more how you can help. One is called nomoredeaths.org. Another is unitedwedream.org. And a local one is maketheroadny.org. So they're all um, immigrants regardless of status. They're devoted to helping them out. So yeah, that's, that's the end of my segment. Um, it was quite deafening to hear her say those words. I did catch the story a couple of times on a different news outlets and it was so, I don't know, I guess because it wasn't sugarcoated, <laughs> it was just very much like, don't come here. You know, it just, it just seems so, um, <sighs> I don't know. It, it, it just really, America is not what they never was, what they claim to be. But this is, 
oddly, uh, actually illegal for one of the international treaties that was created by the UN for people to be able to claim asylum and seek refuge in countries. Not to say that everybody who is trying to cross the border illegally is claiming asylum, but the fact that if that is the case and we are the closest territory, where are people supposed to go? Uh, Really disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it's that thing of it's not, you know, in the minds of the people who agree with that stopping of of um, migrants, it's, you know, it's not our problem, right? Like, it it's very much, and I, like, stuff like this always makes me, you know, um, feel, like, anti-nationalist, you know, like, like, borders are made up and, you know, the fact that some people suffer just because of where they happen to fall on the map and other people, you know, don't, it's just, it, it's overwhelming. Um, and in this particular scenario, you know, it is the, U. like, I think that was a really good overview, um, Jasmine of, uh, how much, how much the United States is intertwined in these issues on purpose. The United States threw itself like headfirst into things that did not involve, our country at all and um you know loves to to drop a bomb and just walk away just like has done that like all over the world and we're not the only you know um other imperialist countries also um have done that over and over again um yeah it's it's upsetting and um not what we wanted to see from the Biden administration but you know we knew that there would be things that came up and it's important to pay attention um, and not just sit back and um, expect everything to just fall into place. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I'm also, I am, I'm not a patriotic person. I'm not a nationalist like at all. And there's just so much suffering that happens because of lines that were drawn on a map. And we did not have these lines for much of human history. You know, like it's migration is just a normal thing that human beings on all continents have done since the beginning of human beings existing. So for it to be criminalized in this way and regulated in this way, it's not, I think, you know, we our, our lifespans are comparatively short when you look at the length of human civilization. So for us in our lifetimes, we've only ever known maps and the borders that we have. But for most of the time humans have existed, they were not there. And um, I remember a few years ago, there was that very horrible photo of the, the young man, um, who had died, his name was Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez. He was 25 and he had his 23 month old daughter with him, Angie Valeria, and they drowned. Um, And there was a lot of controversy over showing the image or not. And people need to understand this is the reality. Like people are going to flee. If you set someone's house on fire, doing like telling them not to leave it's like you might as well set their home on fire and then lock the door behind you and say well I'm, I can't help you over here you know and it, it doesn't have to be this either or thing where you know she mentioned different policies that are allegedly supposed to help to keep people in their country but you can do those things and then at the same time make 
stop criminalizing and demonizing migrants because they have to go somewhere. You know, it just, it, to me, it just looks like another example of you have like a great power, like a great military power that is putting people in an impossible situation. And then when they do the human thing to try to survive, they're treated like the villain. You know, like ultimately you're basically saying, well, you should just stay and like, I guess, wait until whatever death squad comes to you. Like, I, if it were you in that situation, you would just not lay down and accept your fate. You would do whatever you could to get free and to get safe. So, yeah, it was the way she repeated it multiple times. I'm like, well, she is a police officer. So it's a shame and a lot of people are disappointed, but hopefully there's enough of a backlash for there to be some kind of movement on this. So um, just like with the earlier links related to different pride marches going on in the city, I will also um, put the links up on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. Um, to different immigrants' rights organizations that you can donate to, volunteer for, help out with. Um, also, our Instagram page is at objection to the rule, no spaces, no punctuation. Um, and I strongly recommend, if you have access to a Netflix account, to watch Immigration Nation um, on top of reading about the History of Immigration Enforcement in the U.S. Um, it's a very well done documentary. It does get difficult to watch at times, but it's extremely informative and you're really, you're hearing things straight from the people most directly of, impacted by these policies, as well as the people who are enforcing them. And you get to see how they think and feel about what they're doing. So watch Immigration Nation, look on our social media pages for ways to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to your point, um, all migrant stories are not the same. Not everybody's running for the same reason. This is not a monolithic group of people. It's a bunch of different countries for different reasons. Um, and as the article stated, America loves to do their dirty work and then shut everybody out um, and get no repercussions. So, um, yeah, let's make some noise about this because this is obviously not what they were saying during their campaign. I think we're seeing a lot more of that. And it also ties into our next segment. I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but thank you so much for that story. Jasmine, we're going to go ahead and take another music break. This song is called The Violence of the Lambs, and it's by Paris, George Clinton, Chuck D, and T. Cash. We'll be right back. What Malcolm X said when he got by Elijah Muhammad was in fact true. America's chickens are coming home to roost. We took this country by terror away from the Sioux, the Apache, the Arawak, the Comanche, the Arapaho, the Navajo. Terrorism. We took Africans from their country to build our way of ease and kept them enslaved and living in fear. Terrorism. We bombed Grenada and killed innocent civilians, babies, non-military personnel. We bombed the black civilian community of Panama with stealth bombers and killed unarmed teenagers and toddlers, pregnant mothers and hardworking 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. For our world news segment, I have drawn information from this story from ICANW.org, also from an article and interview on Democracy Now!, and also from uh, armscontrol.org. The title of the article that I'll be discussing mostly is Complicit Nuclear Weapons Spending Increased by $14 billion in 2020. President Biden has begun his first European trip as president. After meeting British Prime Minister Boris Johnson today, Biden will take part in the G7 leaders meeting at Cornwall, then head to the NATO summit in Brussels. He'll end his trip in Geneva, where he'll meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin on June 16th. Okay, the Biden-Putin summit comes just weeks after Biden, the Biden administration announced it would not rejoin the Open Skies Treaty, a major international arms control deal signed by the George H.W. Bush administration in 1992. Vladimir Putin then announced that Russia would also withdraw from the treaty. The treaty was signed on March 24th of 1992. The Open Skies Treaty permits each state party to conduct short notice, unarmed reconnaissance flights over the other's entire territories to collect data on military forces and activities. Observation aircraft used to fly the missions must be equipped with sensors that enable the observing party to identify significant military equipment, such as artillery, fighter aircraft, and armored combat vehicles. Meanwhile, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN for short, has just published a report revealing global spending on nuclear weapons increased by $1.4 billion last year despite the pandemic. The report found the world's nine nuclear-armed countries spent a combined $72.6 billion on nuclear weapons in 2020. That amounts to nearly $138,000 every minute. The United States spent the most by far, $37 billion, three times more than the next country, which was China. They spent $10 billion. Russia was next with $8 billion, followed by the UK, France, India, Israel, Pakistan, and North Korea spent a whopping $667 million. ICANN also released a short video to accompany the report. So I drew some information from the video um, just so that we can put this into context. The nuclear, the nine nuclear armed states spent $72.6 billion of taxpayer money during the worst global pandemic in a century facing weapons, financing weapons of mass destruction. Although most countries support a global ban on nuclear weapons, these countries and companies spent billions to keep nuclear weapons in business. These companies fund major think tanks and write, that write about nuclear weapons and hire lobbyists to make sure policymakers approve enormous nuclear weapon budgets every year. Alicia Saunders-Zachara, a policy and research coordinator for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, appeared on Democracy Now! this week to discuss the findings of the report uh, that she co-authored. The name of the report is the title of the article, Complicit 2020 Global, Global Nuclear Weapon Spending. So here's a small segment of her commentary. We did the methodology to provide that estimate, which hasn't been done very much in the past. And this year, we wanted to show more of a big picture. We looked at all of the pieces of the puzzle and the flow of the money, the cycle of spending on weapons of mass destruction that happened just within one year. We saw 
After those countries decided to spend the $72.6 billion on the nuclear weapons programs, they gave out $27 billion in contracts to the defense companies that build and maintain these weapons. They also spent $117 million for lobbying these policymakers to increase the spending on defense and up to $10 million in funding almost um, for all of these think tanks that do the research. So she really just kind of went into detail on, about all of the people that are involved. Um, these are all the actors, the players, and everyone else that are involved in this dirty nuclear weapon um, program that we all are kind of not privy to unless we go looking for this information. Her goal was for us to start holding these policymakers accountable. From year to year, the spending on nuclear weapon has been increasing. Regarding the NATO summit in particular, Biden wrote an opinion piece to the Washington Post recently that a real focus of this trip was to promote democratic values and to bring power, bring the power of democracy to the meetings. But despite Biden's campaign promises of wanting to work for arms control and disarmament, we're seeing that in reality, he's going full stream ahead with President Trump's nuclear weapons programs. So yes, that is um, a summary of the article and the video. Um, obviously, these numbers are outrageous considering the fact that he's supposed to spend $500 billion on COVID vaccines to donate, when all the time he was telling us that he was about disarmament, he didn't agree with all of these Trump policies, and he's literally not only going along with them, but increasing um, our involvement in this program. Uh, retreating, retreating from the treaty the Open Skies Treaty just really shows that that is just, you know, something they signed on to to almost uh, put a cloud or cloak over our head about what was really being what was really happening. But it's pretty scary to know that this all was happening during the pandemic when people were dying and people are still dying without access to medication and things that don't kill people that actually heal people. What do you ladies think about this story? Well, any nuclear weapons talk always, you know, I don't know if the heebie-jeebies is the right word, but it makes me um, definitely <laughs> gets all my anxiety, you know, my blood pumping for sure. I hate the idea that everyone's so armed up because we that is bad for humanity. And I think you're right. And I think when you hear numbers like that, you know, I mean, how many nuclear bombs do do you need? At the end of the day, I think a, f a few handful will pretty much wipe this planet out anyway. Um, and, you know, all these discussions about, oh, there's not enough money to, you know, public health care or like, you know, universal basic income. It's like, yes, there is. <laughs> there absolutely is. Um, it's just not where we choose to place those funds. Um, or, you know, eight people have are billionaires, so they get all the money. I also am very, they freak me out. I wish they had never been invented. I think they're, you know, one of, like, even like the rumor or a lie about, you know, this or that country having access to nuclear weapons, or it's been used as a justification for so much, like, so many atrocities around the world. Like, it's... Yeah, weapons of mass destruction. I don't I don't even I don't even have the words and there's so many resources that go into creating and maintaining them and it's unconscionable when people don't have food to eat you know people like you said people don't have health care you have shoddy education you can't pay people enough 
to live, you know, comfortably, but there's money for, you know, mutually assured destruction. It's like, what does, uh, I don't know who said it first, but like that statement that budgets are moral documents is absolutely true. What you put funnel hundreds and millions and billions of dollars into like trillions at some point, like that's, it says something about what you value. So like all this value on mass destruction, it's, it's not great. It's terrible. Yeah. And it really runs uh, adjacent to, you know, the conversation we was having in the previous segment about the campaign promises from this administration and how they're like blatantly and clearly um, they pretty much just lied. Um, and I think that the race to get Trump out of office was really the focus of, you know, the whole year last year. However, look what the fuck is happening. You know, we, we have been reporting so many good stories out of this administration and it's great to see the progress, but these are the type of things that happen that the average person has no idea is going on. And then when some shit blows up, like all of us, you know, it's like, Oh, but they said they weren't, yeah, they about that life. Like they really are. And we have to share this information, be mindful. You know, sometimes it feels like we can't do anything about these things. Uh, this is the type of shit that we don't really he- hear about. You know, it's, it's, it's information that's out there. And I want to encourage all of you to watch the, you know, short video. It was only about three minutes to just kind of put this context um, around the story. And the report itself just really detailed how the money's being filtered through think tanks and all these other, um, you know, companies that are funding the business of nuclear weapons. And it is, it's very scary to consider the fact that th- I almost feel like this is why politicians are put in office anyway. Like, fuck the shit that we be talking about. This is why they're there to maintain this anarchy of global power. And it's, it's scary to know that these fake ass politicians is pretty much just using our trust, using our commitment to overcome one demon when all the time they're sitting here supporting all the rest and being them at, as well. You know, so I always um, am really big about, you know, voting and being involved in the democratic process. And I will never take that back because that's our only entry into these conversations. It's our only way to be represented. So we definitely have to be more vigilant about that. But we need to also be sharing this information. We need to also be sharing it with everyone we know and making sure that people are aware that this is what these politicians do. Don't get it twisted. Like, it's nice that we see some movement. But the truth of the matter is no one's fucking safe in the entire world. So whether it's a vaccine or whatever it is, you know, just hug your kids, hug your wife, Mm -hmm. like, you know, do something to love somebody. I also want to note real fast that, you know, who does win are the defense contractors, right? They're they're selling, literally you said they're selling weapons to everyone. Like they are making so much money off of putting, you know, humanity in, in danger um yeah yeah some scary shit people yeah dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb is streaming on hbo if you haven't seen it it's um it was i saw it with two of two close friends of mine in a theater years back and it was a packed theater and it was so it's a it's a brilliant film but it's also very poignant about you know being on the edge of destruction and you know what what having access to these weapons really mean and how 
fickle the people are who are in control of them. Like just the whole concept of, you know, someone can press a button somewhere and just obliterate half the planet. Like it's, I mean, all you can do sometimes is like just laugh at the sheer like absurdity of it to keep from crying. But yet to Reese, you're absolutely right. Like you have to educate yourself because that's the first step in any of the stuff that we talk about. If you don't know what the hell is going on, like you can't take a position on it and you can't act um, in line with what you believe. So please read, (laughs) open a book, like watch documentaries, like get to know what the people that are acting in your name are claiming to act in your name. Like what do they stand for for real? Like what are their actions? And don't be so quick to wear the fucking paraphernalia that they provide for you and broadcast their messages as if they are a fashion brand. Okay. Hug your kids, hug your wife. Like I said, pray, meditate, do whatever you got to do to keep your peace, but more importantly, educate yourself in your community. Make sure you share this information, check out the report and the video and um, yeah, just stay abreast to the news. All right. Take a breather. (sighs) Emily, give us some good news, please. Uh, this is some good news from the Biden administration after all that, but also for humanity, I think in general. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, um, as we've said multiple times on the show, it's no one is going to perfectly represent what you do want in the world. So you, even people you support, sometimes you got to stay on top of them about, um, other issues that they're not doing the stuff you want. So, um, this is a two part news story. Uh, the first part, uh, research for it comes from a June 1st writer's article by Nicola Groom titled Biden Suspends Trump-Era Oil and Gas Leases in Alaska Refuge. Uh, the article explains, quote, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration on Tuesday said it would suspend oil and gas leases that were handed out in an Alaskan wildlife refuge during the final days of the Trump administration pending an environmental review. The action reverses one of former President Donald Trump's signature efforts to expand fossil fuel development in the United States and delivers a setback to the Alaskan state government, which had hoped opening the enormous refuge would help revive its declining oil industry. Trump's Interior Department sold the leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, in January over the objections of environmentalists and indigenous groups. During his campaign, Biden had pledged to protect the 19.6 million acre pristine habitat for polar bears, caribou, and migratory birds. Uh, It is important to note that, quote, the review, which will examine legal deficiencies in the previous administration's environmental analysis of leasing in ANWR, will will determine whether the leases would stand to be voided or be subject to mitigation measures, the statement said. Uh, The ANWR leasing program is already the subject of lawsuits by by environmental and indigenous groups that allege the Trump administration violated federal law by performing a faulty environmental analysis that failed to adequately adequately consider its impact on wildlife and native peoples. Um, So that is the first part. And it's sort of like it's good news for now and hopefully will become permanent good news um, in the future. And then this is a big one that actually broke yesterday, um, which was June 9th. Um, and the AP has reported that the, uh, quote, Keystone XL pipeline nixed after Biden stands firm on permit. 
Quote, the sponsor of the Keystone XL crude oil pipeline pulled the plug on the contentious project Wednesday after Canadian officials failed to persuade President Joe Biden to reverse his cancellation of its permit on the day he took office. Calgary-based TC Energy said it would work with government agencies to ensure a safe termination and exit uh, termination of and exit from the partially built line, which was to transport crude from the oil sand fields of Western Canada to Steel City, Nebraska. Uh, quote, environmentalists who had fought the project since it was first announced in 2008 said its cancellation marks a landmark moment in the effort to curb the use of fossil fuels. Also, quote, on Montana's Fort Belknap Reservation, tribal president Andy Work Jr. described the end of Keystone as a relief to Native Americans who stood against it out of concerns a line break could foul the Missouri River or other waterways. Um, so two pieces of good news. Um, you know, fossil fuels are dead, um, you know, and the sooner we get away from them, the quicker we'll move away from climate catastrophe. Definitely good news that we won't die from climate catastrophe. We'll just die from weapons. Just nuclear bombs. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's not funny, y'all. We're just trying to make you feel better. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. So Exactly. Exactly. But it's good to hear that there was some progress made on the pipeline. I know we have um, been reporting on that story uh, once or twice before on the show. So thank you for sharing those updates. I mean, you know. I guess we got to take the good with the bad, right? At least it's not all bad <laughs> like it was last year. Yeah, and the four years before that. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for that story. And I believe that is it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify or iTunes podcast. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to go ahead and play you out with our final track of the day. It's by an artist called Nate Mercerou, and it's called Righteous Energy. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.